All right, we'll open up, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are going to finish this series tonight, finish this book, finish this series. And this, uh, this final section here that I'm going to preach tonight, that we're going to look at tonight, is a, is a little bit weird, to be honest with you. Um, but we're going to start in verse 13 and end at the end of the letter in verse 18. And if you have uh, a Bible that has headings in it, uh, you may see there's a heading kind of right in the middle of that, right? Right after verse 15, right before verse 16. Um, so there's a pretty, pretty major break there. And so um, it may not seem like at first that these, these verses all kind of fit together and, and, um, and, and that Paul's using these, these five verses to make one point, but I think we're going to see that they do and, and that he is. Uh, but the first thing I want us to do before we um, read through the passage even is look at verse... Um, Look at verse 17. Let's, let's deal with verse 17 first, and then we'll go back and look at the rest of the passage. So in verse 17, there's this kind of weird, or not weird, but this kind of interesting historic kind of note, and we've, we've mentioned this before when we were preaching through chapter 2. But in verse 17, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. And, and, and this is... Uh, kind of common for Paul. He says, this is the way that I write. This is a sign of genuineness in all of my letters. And, and we have notes like this in, in other letters as well. In Galatians uh, chapter 6 that we read to start the service tonight, there's a mention there of, of that reading being written in, in his own hand. Um, in 1 Corinthians 16, he, he mentions it. In Colossians chapter 4, he makes a mention of it. And this was kind of the, the way that Paul operated. He would have a, uh, he, he wouldn't write all of his letters. He would dictate them. He had a, a secretary that would write them for him. Um, and, and not in every, in, in, in a few cases, I think even is mentioned who that person is, but not in every case, we don't know. It's not always the same person. Um, it may have been Timothy, it may have been Titus, it may have been uh, Sylvanus, it may have been some of the people that were working with him that he would dictate the letters and they would write them out. But then at the very end of the letter, he would, he would, he would write the greeting with his own hand, his own handwriting. Um, and he's even calling their attention to that, saying that you can tell that here. You can tell that my handwriting is different than the handwriting in the rest of the letter. And so that's how you know that this letter is, is genuine. And as we noted when we were in chapter 2, if you look at chapter 2, the first couple of verses there, um, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so here Paul mentions a letter that seemed to be from him, a counterfeit letter, a letter that someone else wrote and claimed that Paul had written it and had gotten the church all stirred up, gotten the church all, all messed up, believing all kinds of different things and worrying about um, had, they, had they missed the coming of the Lord or had they not. And so here at the end, Paul is saying, this is how you know this is a genuine letter of mine. This is how you know that I wrote this because I'm, signing it with my own handwriting, as it were, okay? So I want to go back to, uh, to, to verse 6. We started this morning in verse 6, um, and, and this early, these early verses, 13, 14, 15, really flow right out of the passage that Josh Green preached this morning. So I want to start with verse 6, and we're going to read through, the, through verse 18, and then we'll step back and look at a, at a few things. So starting in verse 6, Paul says, Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, 
nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so here Paul's addressing directly these people he's saying that are busybodies, these people he's saying that are idle, this report he's gotten back, and he's, he's commanding them in verse 12, I command them and encourage them in the Lord Jesus to do their works, and begins to address the, the rest of the church, or, or the, whole, the church as a whole. He begins to address those that are not busybodies, those that are not um, idle, and, and address what they should do about those who are idle uh, and, and busybodies. So in verse 13 he says, as for you brothers, that is, as for those of you who are not idle and not busybodies, as for you, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so going back to verse 13, the, the, the first thing he tells these believers is, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. And, and, and when he's talking about good here, he's talking about things that are, that are right, right? Things that are right kind of in and of themselves. Not, 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 not worrying about the, the benefits that come from it necessarily, the results that come from it, but, but things that are good in and of themselves. And, but he doesn't, he doesn't say don't grow weary in doing the right thing. He says don't grow weary in doing good. And, and I think we all would recognize and all would know that there are times when people do the right thing, but they don't do it in a good way, right? And so he's commanding the brothers, commending them, encouraging them, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't, don't grow weary in doing the right thing in the, in the good way. And he says don't grow weary because this is a, a gradual thing that sometimes happens. It's a temptation for those who are doing the right thing, especially when they see others who are not doing the right thing. It's a temptation for those who are doing the right thing to become weary in that, right? Well, if I'm the only one here doing this, then uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore, right? If, if, if no one else is helping, then I'm not going to help. Um, or... Uh, I've been doing this for years and years and years, and it, now it's my turn to take a break and for someone else to step up and, and, and take charge. And, to, and, and it's easy to grow weary in, in, in those things, and he tells them not to. He says, don't do that, okay? The passage we read to begin the service tonight, Galatians 6, says almost the exact same thing, right? He, it's, but he adds some things. He says, don't grow weary in doing good, uh, but at the proper time, you'll receive a harvest, right? You'll receive a, a reward for that. Um, and... And, and so he tells them, you know, don't grow weary, keep it up, continue with the right thing, continue with the, with the good thing. This kind of reminds me of, of Psalm 73, and you can, you can just listen if you want to, or if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, but Psalm 73, this is uh, a psalm where the psalmist, who I, I believe is David, it's actually a psalm of Asaph, not David, a psalm of Asaph, but listen to what he says. He says, truly God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out from fat, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, this people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And so the, the author of the psalmist uh, of this psalm here is saying, uh, I almost stumbled. We're going to see when we go read the rest of the passage that he didn't actually stumble. But he says, I almost stumbled. And the thing that got me, the, the, the thing that, that the temptation that I almost fell into was looking at the world around me and seeing all these people who do evil their lives seem to be easy, right? All these people that do evil, their lives seem to be easy. He says that they, uh, they're prosperous. Um, they're fat and sleek. They have lots of, lots of food to eat. Um, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They have pride as their necklace. Um, they, uh, their heart overflows with follies. Um, uh, they... They get away with all this stuff. They, they're, they're always at ease. They increase in, in riches. And, and he goes on and on about how these evil, wicked people seem to be being blessed in the world. And he says, I'm not like them. I, I don't do those things. I'm doing what's good, and look what it's gotten me. I'm oppressed. I'm, people are, 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 are against me, and, and I'm having a hard life. I don't have all the ease that these people have. I don't have all the, all the food that these people have. I don't have all the folly that these people have, right? And he's saying, it looks like, and we kind of have a saying for this in, in English, right? Sometimes we say that crime pays, right? And, and it's easy for us sometimes to, to be thinking that way and, 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 and become weary in doing good, either inside the church or, or out in the, in the world as we're committed to doing what God calls us to do and living a life of integrity, uh, whether it be with our family or where we work or our, our neighborhood or, or, or whatever it might be. And the psalmist says, I'm looking around me and I'm about to, I'm about to stumble because it seems like all these people have it much easier. And, and basically what he's saying is, I'm becoming weary with doing good, especially as I look around me and see all these people not doing good that, that have, have this good life, it seems like, right? But if we continue in the psalm, we're going to see why he says he almost stumbled, but didn't actually stumble. In verse 16, he says, but, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall on ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. 
whom I've whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that desires beside, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your good works. And so the psalmist says, I looked around me and saw all these, all these people were, were prospering and were having this easy life and, uh, and had everything they wanted, everything they needed. It seemed like they had no troubles at all. And, and it started to, to make me jealous of them, started to make me envious of them, started to make me think, I'm, why, am I, why am I living my life differently than them? And I'm getting all this bad stuff and they're getting all this good stuff. And he says, but then I went into the sanctuary of God and I saw things from God's perspective and I saw the end that these two ways of living result in, right? And he says, because of that, now I understand that what I thought was uh, an easy life, what I thought was happiness and folly and all these things that, that, that he said, in the end, it's not that at all. In the end, living a good life pays off, right? And, and, and often it can be hard on us, it can be difficult for us to, to, to do the exact same thing, to look around us and see people that are, that are not doing good, and it can be wearisome to those who are doing good. It can be wearisome for those who are serving the Lord, like I said, inside the church or outside the church. But Paul says, don't be weary. Don't become weary in doing good. Keep at it. Keep at it. And, 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 and I think he's pointing here to especially this situation because the next thing he says is, uh, do not grow weary in doing good. And then he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person. So now he's talking about people that have disobeyed. People, and, and we can talk about what that means to disobey this letter. He could be talking about the whole letter, like everything he's written so far. And so he could be talking about, um, he could be talking about people uh, that, that have not, are not standing strong in the traditions like they've been taught. He mentions that in chapter 2, verse 15. He tells them to do that. He could be talking about people who are, who are not, uh, not um, faithful uh, to pray for Paul and others. In, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says to pray for us as a command. And, and then, of course, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, that, that Josh Green preached on this morning, um, he talks about not being idle. And so he could be talking about everything in the whole book. He could be talking just specifically about the idleness that he had just talked about. Um, I think he's probably talking about everything, but with a special focus on this idleness that he just talked about, right? And he's saying, there, here's an example of people that are not doing good. Here's an example of people that are not working hard. People, an example of people that are, that, are, that are being idle. And he says, don't grow weary in doing good when you see these other people not doing good, right? And it seems like they have an easy life. And, and Paul says, but, he, but, but they don't. don't. Don't grow weary in doing good um, as you witness these other people in the church or, or even outside the church. But here specifically in the church. He says, if anyone does not, does not obey, if anyone is disobedient, to what we say in this letter. And so he's, he, he, he's making no partiality here, right? He's saying everybody in the church, if anyone is disobedient, then, then we're going to see in a minute. But he's addressing everybody in the church equally. There's not different groups or different categories in the church. He's not, he's not dividing the people up by different uh, economic status, right? And so the, the people that have a lot of money don't have to work as hard, and people that, that don't have as much money, then they have to, to work harder. They're expected to, to serve more. Uh, not at all. He doesn't divide them up into groups of social status. 
Um, does it divide them up into groups of, of different types of personalities, um, even different positions in, in, in the church, different offices in the church? He says, anyone, if anyone in the church is disobedient to what I'm writing, if anyone in the church is not obeying what I have said, then here's what you should do. Number one, he says, take note of them. Verse 14, he says, take note of them. Notice, mark, mark them off. And that might sound kind of harsh to us, but um, as we see the purpose in, in this, I think maybe that'll become a little bit easier. Um, but he does say to mark them off, take, take note of them, um, be aware of them. Right? Now, I don't think we should have a, uh, a culture of, of suspicion where we're always evaluating each other and how many times have, have, has this person done this or how many times has that person done that or has this person served as much as I do in this area or, or we shouldn't be comparing people like that. But he does say that we should take notice if there are people who are habitually idle, if there are people who are habitually disobedient and we should mark those people off. We should, we should notice them and we should... Uh, we should take notice of them somehow, right? Now, he doesn't say here if this is like a, um, a, uh, something that, that we do as a, as a church body corporately or if this is something that we do individually just in our, in our own minds, um, but he says that, that, that we're to take note of them, notice them, mark them off. And then the next thing he tells us to do is, is pretty hard also. At the, at the kind of middle of verse 14, he says, he says, take note of them, and then he says, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with him. That's pretty harsh, right? Just because somebody won't work as hard as somebody else? Just because somebody maybe has taken advantage of others in the church? The work of others in the church? He says, have, have nothing to do with them. Withdraw fellowship from him. Now we, we, we see things like this in other parts of the Bible. You, you can listen, but in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this letter to the, to the Corinthian church. And uh, I'm going to read from chapter 5. If you know the context here, there's a, there's a man in the church that's caught in, it seems to be caught in some type of sexual sin. And so Paul's addressing that in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in verse 11, he says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul says don't even eat with a person like this. Withdraw fellowship from him. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us uh, similar instructions. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to get to the. I'm going to skip to the end here. If you know the context in Matthew 18, uh, Ma Jesus is telling us how to deal with 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 sinful people within the church, right? And I think this means people that are that are unrepentant of their sin, because it says take one person and go and confront the brother if you think they're in sin, and say, hey, this is something I've noticed, and if that person repents, then everything's great, right? And if he doesn't, then take another person with you. And if he still doesn't, take a few more people with you. And uh, eventually he says it will, it will come before the whole church. And, and listen to Jesus speaking in chapter 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Paul says in two different places, if there's someone inside the church, in, in 1 Corinthians, if you didn't catch it, he specifically says, I'm not talking about someone that's outside the church. I'm not talking about an unbeliever, right? If we have someone that, that's among us and they're not believing in Jesus, we should rejoice in that, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't rejoice that they're not believing in Jesus. We should rejoice that they're among us. And we should expect them to act like somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, right? We shouldn't be shocked when someone who doesn't believe in Jesus is in, 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 in some type of habitual sin, right? That shouldn't shock us. We should still hang around that person and, and, and hopefully have opportunities to, to share the gospel with them. But he says if there's someone inside the church, if there's someone that's believing in Jesus, and they're, and they're caught in some kind of habitual sin. And here he even talks about the sin of, of idleness, right? If they're caught in some kind of habitual sin, he says it is our responsibility to make a judgment toward that person and say, you know what, you're claiming to, to believe in Jesus, you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but it doesn't look to us like you're following Jesus. And we don't want to give you a false, uh, a false uh, security, right? We don't want to give you a, a false affirmation that you really are following Jesus. If you're not following Jesus and think you are, we think that's a very dangerous position for you. And so if you're acting like you're not following him, we're going to treat you like you're not following him. And that's what Paul says to do. But he says, we do it for a, for a hopeful reason, for a, for a positive reason. Okay? He tells us to take note of the person, to withdraw from the person, but he also tells us at the end of verse 14 and end of verse 15, he tells us to have hope for that person. Have hope for that person. The end of verse 14, he says, um, he says, have nothing to do with him so that he may be ashamed. So that he may be ashamed. Now that might sound like a kind of a bad thing, right? It might sound like something... Uh, something that, that, that we wouldn't want to do to someone. We wouldn't want to shame someone, wouldn't want to, for someone to be, to be ashamed. But if there's someone inside the church that is living shamefully, being ashamed is the right response, is the proper response that they, that they should have. And he says, treat them this way uh, to, uh, to mark them out and to, and, and to, uh, to withdraw from them for the purpose that, that they might be ashamed. And the hope is that if they are ashamed, then they will, that will lead them to repentance. And if, if, if this letter was read out loud, you know, among the whole church, as was the custom in this time, when they received the letter from Paul, they probably would have read it out loud in a worship service in front of the whole church. And, and, and so the hope might have even been that just reading this letter, and especially when you get to this section about idleness, that the people that are idle, maybe just reading the letter out in front of everybody would, would, would bring them to an ashamed position. And they would repent just from hearing the letter. He says, but if they don't, and you've noticed it in them, and you've marked them out for that, then, then withdraw from them, and, and hopefully they will become ashamed. But again, the goal is that they will be ashamed into repenting. They will be ashamed into turning back. Uh, back, in, back in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul was talking about the man there that was caught in sexual sin. Uh, we didn't read this part, but a little bit earlier than what we started reading in verse 5, he says this. Verse 5, he says, You are to deliver this man to Satan 
for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If there's somebody in the church who is habitually, continually, unrepentantly in sin, we should turn them over to the end of their sin, that they might receive what their sin leads to in, in hopes and in prayer that that would lead them to turn away from their sins. When they see the bankruptcy of what, of what sin is, that it would lead them to turn away from their sins, repent of that, and, and turn back to the Lord. In verse 15, he tells them, he says, uh, do not regard him as an enemy, but he says, warn him as a brother. And so this person that, that we're removing fellowship from, this person that we are marking off as someone that's in sin, we're not treating him as an enemy. We're not treating him as someone that's against us, but he tells us to treat him as a brother. The, the, the whole purpose of this is, is redemptive, not punitive, right? It's to bring him back, not to punish. We're to do this with his well-being in mind, with the sinner's well-being in mind. We're to do this heartbroken over this situation. We should have the best of motives in mind. We should be the, the rebuke of a friend, not the attack of an, of an enemy. How, however disobedient this person is, however freeloading or idle this person is, he's still a member of the family. He's still a brother. And if he's a brother, the hope is that he would repent and turn back. Our desire is that he would repent and turn back. If we think back to verse 14, where Paul's telling us to take note of him, to withdraw from him, this is how, this is how someone who loves his brother does good to him. This is not how we treat an enemy. This is how someone who loves his brother does good to him. And it may, again, it may seem odd, but, but love for one another especially Christian love for one another, especially Christian love for one another in a church together that we've covenanted together, love for one another requires us to be this committed to one another. We shouldn't be okay with someone falling away. We shouldn't be okay with someone who is uh, turning away from the Lord. We shouldn't be okay with someone who is not committed to his Lord and to uh, his brothers and sisters in Christ the way that God calls us to be. He ends this section, or ends the book, verses 16 and 17 and 18. We're going to skip over verse 17. That's why we looked at it at the beginning, because I think 16 and 18 kind of flow together. This is, this is Paul's final prayer for this church, his final prayer for the church in Thessalonica, and he prays two things for them. He prays two things for them. Look, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. At verse 1 and 2, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you flip back just a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians, you'll see that he starts that letter the same way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And this is how he ends 2 Thessalonians. He prays two things for them. He prays that they would have peace, and he prays that they would experience God's grace. He says in verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. He's 
praying that they would have peace, but only that they would have peace through the Lord of peace, which is the only way that peace does come. He prays they would have peace at all times, continually, abiding peace, consistent peace that, that remains with them. He prays that they would have peace in every way, he says, in every situation, no matter what the circumstances are. All of, all of life is what he's saying here. All of life, temporally, time-wise, at all times, and in every way. All of our life and all of the life of the church should be characterized by peace because the Lord is our peace. And he prays for the Lord to be with you all, that we might have peace through him. And he says, the Lord be with you all, right? Which includes the people he's writing to, telling them how to deal with those who are disobedient. And it also includes those who are disobedient. Remember, he's calling them brothers, not enemies. The Lord be with you all, he says. And this is what's needed in, in the church. This is what's needed in every church. But this is especially, specifically what was needed in the Thessalonian church. There needs to be peace in the church between the idle people and the hardworking people. There needs to be peace in the church between those who worry that Jesus has already come back because they're believing these false letters and false reports that, that didn't really come from Paul and between those who don't believe those things because they're following what Paul actually said. There needs to be peace between those holding fast to the traditions and those that are not holding fast to the traditions. And Paul prays that they would have peace, that they would experience peace, they would know peace through the Lord of peace. And the second thing he prays for them is he prays grace for them. In verse 18, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. He wants them to have peace, but how do they get to, how do they get to peace? <coughs> they only get to peace through grace. Uh, one commentator, Gordon Fee, says this about grace. He says, when Paul uh, prays for them to, have, to, to experience God's grace here, what he's praying for is what grace means is all that God has done and all that Paul desires that God will do for his Thessalonian friends through Christ Jesus. This is what's needed if the church is going to obey these final instructions. If the idol are going to be ashamed and turn back, they need God's grace. If those who are hardworking, those who are not idle, are going to treat them like brothers and not enemies, are going to love them and not, uh, not despise them, right? Are going, to, uh, are going to be good to them and not, um, and, and, and not look down on them. They need the Lord's grace working in them. This is what Paul prays for them, and this is what Paul expects God will do for them. And this is what Paul expects, and this is what we expect God will do for us as well. Let's pray for the peace of, of God here among us, whatever divisions there, there may be among individuals. Let's pray for God's grace that sin will be dealt with and done away with, and we will be pure and holy people. Let's pray for God's grace that we will treat one another well, treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, not as enemies, and that we would work hard, pray hard, love hard for one another. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that our standing with you does not depend at all on how hard we, we work for you. Those who are idle are brothers, and those who are not idle are brothers if we're believing in and trusting in Jesus. And God, I pray for all of us here that you would help us to understand your word clearly. And Father, help us to follow what you have commanded us in your word faithfully. Father, help us to love one another 
And even when, that, when, when loving one another requires us to have some hard conversations with each other and requires us to, uh, to, uh, to perhaps even, even treat people um, in a way that, that, that would cause them to be ashamed and, and, and hopefully come back to the Lord. Father, I pray you would help us to, uh, to be people that when others have hard conversations with us, that we receive those well and we hear and listen and we humble ourselves and, and, and we turn back in areas where we need to be brought back in. And God, I pray that you would be uniting our church and, and, and all churches, God, in the peace of our Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would do that through your grace working in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.